Let's pray. Dearly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the time that we get to be here together. I pray in these next few moments as we look together at your word, Father, I pray that you will speak to us, that you will prepare our hearts to receive whatever you want to say to us. Remove the distractions and give us the strength to do it. Give us the wisdom to understand it. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I have been, we've had D-Now weekend. You'll see the shirts from some of the youth. Um, and Chuck, yep. Uh, it was great. How much sleep did you get, Harley? Uh-huh, yeah, right. Oh, eight hours total over two days. So if they fall asleep, then, you know, just throw something at them. Um, but I, I'm going to bring the message today. Jimmy is, uh, Jimmy's left. Jimmy's gone. His wife's still here, but so is his son. We, we kept them. We had to pick, and we said, we'll keep Miss Sharon. No, he's, uh, he is doing an a, uh, ordination service for um, one of our sister churches, a, a pastor for one of our sister churches at River Oaks. So I get the blessing to bring the message, which I've entitled today, Evergreen. So early in the morning last week, I was walking my neighborhood, and it has a lot of oak trees. If you've ever been to my house, you know it's got lots of oak trees. It's called Oak Village. And this time of year, all of the oak trees are either completely bare of leaves or um, they've got leaves that are dead, but for some reason they haven't fallen. And amid all these oak trees, every now and then, there is an evergreen tree. And what struck me as I was walking around the neighborhood that morning was the vibrant life of these evergreen, evergreen trees contrasted with the bareness, the seeming deadness of the oaks. And I realized as I was walking around and thinking about it that embarrassingly enough, I didn't know or I didn't remember how or why evergreen trees stayed evergreen. I didn't know how their leaves survived and stayed green through freezing temperatures. So I looked it up. Now, back in the day, you had to get the encyclopedia. We had a green set. These, they don't know what we're talking about. We had a green set, and you had to find the letter, right? And you pull it out, E, evergreen, you pull it out. Nowadays, you can just Google it. So I looked it up. And first, I found something interesting about non-evergreen trees. What are, what are non-evergreen trees called? Is there any? Deciduous, yes, we have the right answer. They're called deciduous trees. Smart Alec. They're called deciduous trees. Now, what's interesting, I found something interesting about them first. The leaves of the deciduous tree, they don't actually die because of the freeze. So instead, when a deciduous tree, or as Chuck calls it, a tree, a normal tree, when it, when it senses that freezing weather might be imminent, when it starts to get colder which in Texas, you know, it gets colder and then warmer again and then colder and then warmer again. That's why we all have allergies constantly. So when it senses that freezing weather might be imminent, the tree, and this is a really technical term, it sucks up all the nutrients into its trunk and it lets the leaves die. It removes the nutrients from the leaves. So the leaves of a deciduous tree, they die because they are deprived of nutrients, by the, of nutrients by the tree itself, not because of the cold. Anticipating the trouble, anticipating the trial, the tree retreats and knows its leaves are too delicate to survive the freezing weather. So how do evergreen trees stay evergreen? Well, they do so on two fronts. They've kind of got an offensive weapon, they've got a defensive weapon. So defensively, evergreen trees, um, they have leaves or needles like this one does, like pine trees. And um, the needles are strong enough to not get damaged by the freezing temperature. 
Um, now, offensively, the trees actually, and I don't fo- expect you to follow this, I'll just put it up there so it looks smart, but offensively, the trees produce a protein that acts like an antifreeze. They produce their own antifreeze. And this protein, what this protein does is it binds to the ice crystals and it actually changes the structure of the ice crystals. And it causes them to change, to reform into the ice crystals into shapes that are less damaging. It's really, I mean, miraculous if you think about it. That it has this offensive and defensive measure to counter the freeze. And today I want you to ask yourself, I want me to ask myself, am I an evergreen Christian? That is the question we're going to look at today. Am I an evergreen Christian? So winter is coming. I know we're in the middle of winter. Obviously, I'm speaking metaphorically. The freeze is near. When troubles come in your life, will you retreat or will you endure? Some Christians are deciduous. When things are good, they're strong and healthy. It's easy to be strong and healthy when times are good, isn't it? It's easy when everybody's smiling. But when troubles come, they retreat. They, re- they wait for conditions to improve. But other Christians are evergreen. They're built to endure the, inev- the inevitable trouble of this world. And what I want to ask us today is, are we that type of Christian? Are we evergreen Christians? So turn with me if you want. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to James, the first chapter. If not, it'll be on the screen. We'll be in James chapter 1, starting in uh, verse 2. And James says this. He says, my brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but what? Joy. When you fall into all sorts of trials. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect effect so that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. He starts, my brothers and sisters, consider it, regard it, count it. Nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials. In other words, James knows that trials are not inherently pleasant or he wouldn't have to give us this instruction. But we are to consider them joy. By the way, this word consider in the Greek is an imperative. It's a command. This is not James saying, hey, I've got a secret. I'm going to give you some advice on how to weather the storms, the troubles of life. This is James, inspired by God, commanding us as Christians to consider nothing but joy when we fall into trials. We could translate it as, my brothers and sisters, you must consider nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials. And here, James uses the term, this is the actual term, fall into all sorts of trials. So what does he mean by the uh, term that we fall into trials? Well, what he means, first off, is that the trials he's talking about are not of our own making, right? They're not of our own making. So uh, we shouldn't mistake trial, the trials he's talking about, uh, we shouldn't mis- mistake them for suffering the consequences of our own bad decisions. If you make a bad decision and then it comes back to bite you, that's cause and effect. That's cause and effect. That is a foreseeable consequence to something of your own doing. Um, I mean, we could go on and on. We've all made bad decisions and suffered from them. But that's not what he's talking about. These trials are not of our own making. These are trials we fall into. And these trials are unexpected or unforeseen. He's, he, he paints the picture of us just walking through life normally and then just falling into this trial, into this trouble. It's not, it's not of our own making. It's not 
expected, right? These trials are unexpected. So here James says, as you go about your life, you will occasionally fall into trials. And when you find yourself in the middle of such a trial, you are supposed to consider it. You're supposed to regard it as nothing but joy. In the Greek, uh, it says we're to consider such trials all joy. In fact, the Greek word for all actually begins the sentence. It seems to be, because in Greek, and Chuck can... Chuck knows this. We've suffered through it together. They can, word order doesn't matter. They can just put, it doesn't matter. They can just throw them all in there together. But sometimes what they start the sentence with is emphasized. And the first word in this sentence in Greek is all. He says we are to consider such trials as all joy, 100% joy. In other words, we are to treat these trials as if there is nothing but joy to gain from them. We are supposed to treat these trials as if there is nothing but joy to gain from them. So what does that mean? Does that mean that we fake it? That we smile through the pain and pretend that everything's okay, even when we're suffering through a trial not of our own making? On the contrary, what James is talking about is not faking it, all right? There's a certain, if you go to the Christian life section of any bookstore, you'll see a bunch of books with people smiling, right? And they're smiling because they're making lots of money from you buying their books. But anyway, that's why they're smiling. But are we supposed to fake it? No. James is talking about a shift, a change in our perspective, a transformed mindset. We are not supposed to pretend. We're not supposed to act like these trials are 100% joy. We are to genuinely regard such trials as nothing but joy. We are commanded to generally consider genuinely consider such trials all joy and thus we come to our first characteristic an evergreen christian has a perspective of joy an evergreen christian has a perspective of joy even during trials this means importantly that our circumstances should not determine our joy james think about this i know this sounds pretty radical but james would not give us a command from the lord that we couldn't fulfill that we couldn't obey. God is not going to command us to do something that's impossible for us to obey. We are commanded to consider these trials as nothing but joy, so that means this is possible. Now, if you think about it, this is completely opposite of the normal reaction. This is completely opposite of the way the world thinks. The way that the world thinks about joy. The world thinks that joy is something brought to you if you carefully construct your world in such a way that joy is a production of it. Um, they tell us, you know, if you get rid of your toxic friends, if you quit your toxic job, if you treat yourself the right way, if you surround yourself with positivity and all the things you like, then this will spark joy within you, right? Now, it's, there's nothing wrong with getting rid of toxic friends or quitting a toxic job. Um, in fact, you should do all those things. But... Do not confuse positive circumstances with joy. The world says positive circumstances equal joy. But clearly, that's not the case. Here, James tells us that. Joy in this context is not about how you feel. I know it's crazy, but joy is not about how you feel, not in the biblical context. It's not about feeling happy. Right? Feeling happy can, is circumstantial. There are drugs out there that can make you feel happy. Now, I remember watching videos years back where they put electrodes in people's brains and by, 
by sending a certain elect, elect, uh, electrical signal to a certain part of someone's brain, they can make them feel happy, right? Happiness is just a chemical signal in your brain, electrical signal in your brain. What James is talking about in the biblical context is the perspective that you have while you're going through a trial. And notice that James doesn't say that you should have some joy. Hey, try to like have a, a little, at least a little joy when you go through trials, or, or a half joy, or 75% joy. That's not what James says. He says 100% joy. Cancer, joy. You lose your job because your company's downso- downsizing, joy. You're a Christian in a foreign country who's being persecuted for your faith. You have to hide, uh, or you have to worship at night and hide from the government, joy. Now remember, one of the ways that an evergreen tree stays evergreen is because it produces that protein that I was talking about that acts like an antifreeze. If you remember the protein, it binds itself to the ice and it crystals and it changes their structures. The ice is still ice, okay? It doesn't melt it. It doesn't make it not ice. The ice is still ice, but it's reformed. It's transformed in such a way as to not harm the tree, to not kill the tree. A joyful perspective amidst suffering does something like that evergreen antifreeze. It reforms the suffering. It changes it. A joyful perspective in the midst of these trials reforms, transforms our suffering, not into happiness, but into something less destructive. It transforms it into something different. This is the hardest and least automatic characteristic of the evergreen Christian. But if you can master it, just think about this. If you can master this, your entire life is going to be different. And I know people tend to be hyperbolic, especially pastors. This can change your life. I think Buck said he had a blueberry donut one day and it changed his life, right? That's not what I'm talking about. Although, right. We're talking about something a little different, and I'm, but I'm not lying. If you can get this characteristic, if you can be an evergreen Christian, it will change your life. Your entire life will be different, and the trials you fall into will be transformed into something new. So the most immediate question for me, I don't know about maybe for you too, that rises from this is why? Why should we joyfully embrace such trials? James commands us to, the Lord commands us to, but why? Well, James goes on, and he says this in verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And here James tells us so much. There's so much theological richness packed into, it's not even a sentence. It's not even its own sentence. But there's so much here that James is telling us. Let's start with that beginning. Because you know. Because you know. What does that mean? That means that we know that we're going to encounter such trials. You already know that. And it implies that we already have the knowledge we need. God has given us what we need, the knowledge we need to persevere. Remember the evergreen tree. The evergreen tree is prepared for freezing weather because of the shape of its needles. It doesn't wait for the weather to start growing colder. Instead, equipped with the knowledge that winter will come, it is always prepared for it. The evergreen tree is always prepared for winter. You and I, dear brothers and sisters, must be prepared for such trials. We don't know when they're coming. We're going to fall into them. Instead, James tells us that we must be prepared for them. 
We already have knowledge. James says, because you know. Know what? You know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Therefore, we can have a joyful perspective whenever we encounter trials, not because we're crazy, but because we know that falling into trials tests our faith. You might go, well, duh. But that does something. Falling into trials tests our faith. The word for testing here that James uses typically refers to testing precious metal to see if it is genuine. These trials test the genuineness of our faith. Is our faith real? Is it genuine? Is it lasting? Or is it fool's gold? But this testing is not merely just for testing's sake. This doesn't happen just for just because. By testing the genuineness of our faith, these trials that we fall into produce something. What do they produce? Say it a little louder for me. Yeah, you guys sound so happy. This is a really po- Jimmy's always positive. He always has his happy things. I got to bring the room down. I got to remind you, right? Why is endurance important? Well, Jesus says this in Matthew twenty four thirteen, but the one who does what will be saved. It's interesting. Do you want to be saved? I mean, we are saved, but he's talking about the finish line of salvation. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Paul, well, not Paul, but the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12 that we must run with endurance the race set out for us. We must fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We have to run with endurance the race set out for us. That race is we must endure to the end. Running our race, running our race until the end with endurance, listen to me when I say this, is the premier command of the New Testament. It is found all over the place. It's found in the Gospels. Jesus says it. It's found in Paul's letters. It's found in non-Pauline letters. And I think our once saved, always saved theology causes us sometimes to discount this command and we kind of get cheap grace. Now, this is all I'm going to say about that. Make no mistake, there is no comfort in Scripture for the person who stops running the race of faith. There's a lot of debate, and I've never understood it. There's a lot of debate surrounding what happens, what to call it when someone stops running the race. You go, some people say, well, they're never saved to begin with, or they're backslidden, or this, that. I don't care. If you care, that's fine. You can debate it. People debate it. There's books on it. It doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is that there is no comfort in Scripture for the person who stops running the race. If you stop running the race, if you're not moving forward, you need to get back up. You need to start running. We must run the race with endurance to, finish, to reach the finish line of salvation. And if you are unconcerned with this, if you think, yeah, I'm good, I'm fine. You know, I got saved in VBS when I was six, and I go to church, and I tithe sometimes, and, you know, all this, and I listen to Christian music, and I eat a Chick-fil-A, I do everything I'm supposed to do. I mean, I'm good. Nope, not Whataburger. So if you're unconcerned with this, what I would challenge you with is Jesus was concerned with it. Paul was concerned with it. The author of Hebrews was concerned with it. James is concerned with it. So why are you unconcerned with it? What makes you spiritually superior to the authors of the New Testament? 
A comfortable Christian is not an evergreen Christian. A comfortable Christian is not an evergreen Christian. A comfortable Christian is just a Christian unaware that winter is coming. That's all it is. So an evergreen Christian has a perspective of joy, but an evergreen Christian also is prepared for testing. Prepared for testing. When the, the evergreen Christian, when he or she finds themselves in an unforeseen trial, can consider that trial nothing but joy because they know that such trials test the genuineness of their own faith and that that testing, listen to me, produces the very thing that they need to finish the race. The more trials, the more testing. The more testing, the more endurance. The, sh- the more endurance, the sure your excellent finish to this race of faith becomes. The more you work out a muscle, the more you break it down. The stronger it becomes, the easier it gets to lift that weight. The testing of your faith produces inside of you the very thing that you need to overcome later trials. The testing of your faith produces inside of you the very thing that you need to overcome subsequent trials. This is why older Christians are often less shaken by suffering. Their spiritual muscles have been broken down time and time again and yet have grown back stronger each time. Now, not every older Christian is mature, like the guy to my left, and not every young Christian is immature. Sometimes younger believers suffer through more than their fair share of trials. But I'm telling you that it, James tells us, the Lord promises that it will produce something in us more valuable than anything we can get on this earth, endurance. James goes on in verse 4 to say, And let endurance have its perfect effect, so that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. The combination of perfect and complete, and those are two different words in the Greek, they suggest another dimension of this imagery that probably doesn't just automatically come to our mind. It didn't for me. And that is sacrifice. Sacrifice. Offerings that in the Old Testament were were acceptable to God had to be perfect without blemish and complete or whole. This language that, Paul, that James uses may very well have evoked the notion of the believer, as Paul talks about in Romans 12, a living sacrifice. Remember that? Holy and acceptable to God. It's something that Peter talks about, excuse me, in 1 Peter 2.5. James joins Peter and Paul. This is James, Peter, and Paul telling you this. That, for some reason... Trials are somehow a necessary part of the process of preparing believers for presentation to God. That's how it works. It's not me telling you that. It's James. In James 1, it's Paul in Romans 12. It's Peter in 1 Peter 2. The trials are somehow a necessary part of the process of preparing believers for presentation to God. Sometimes people have questions. Why am I going through these things? Why am I falling into these trials? Why does God not love me? If God loved me, my life would be easy. But that's not what Scripture tells us. Scripture tells us that God uses these trials as part of the process of making us what he wants us to be, of preparing us as living sacrifices. 
If you think about it, living sacrifice does not sound very convenient. Living sacrifice is not an image. We say it a lot, but it, it doesn't sound very pleasant, does it, to be a living sacrifice? And yes, that's what Paul commands us to be in Romans 12. Now, endurance is not the end. So trials produce endurance, but endurance produces something. You ever see those people that, that you, you maybe go to the gym, as you can tell, I go all the time, and you go to the gym, and you see people, and you go like, you're done. You, you made it. You're good. Like, leave some room for the rest of us. You can go home, right? It's like, you're, are you working out just to work out, right? Go home. Well, endurance is not just there for endurance's sake. It produces something. It produces a mature Christian. If you let it, if you allow it, endurance will make you perfect. Now, the word for perfect here is not one of moral perfection, but rather of wholeness or completeness. um, Tanya, don't you click that. You're messing me up. The Christian who allows endurance to have its full effect will be complete. And you might go, uh, that should matter to you. That should be the strive of our Christian life personally. Obviously, we're called to be witnesses to God, uh, for God everywhere, to disciple people. That's the Great Commission. But as far as our individual sanctification, our process of holiness, our goal should be maturity. Our goal should be letting endurance have its full effect and becoming a complete Christian. The Christian who allows endurance to have its full effect will be complete, not deficient in anything, lacking in nothing, is what the Greek says. If you want a model for the Christian life, if you want somebody to follow, don't gravitate to the Christian who smiles the most. All right? Now, there's nothing wrong with smiling. And if that's your personality, then that's great. But you shouldn't necessarily, maybe I should should clarify, you shouldn't necessarily gravitate to the Christian who smiles the most as your model. You should find the one who has suffered the most and kept going. Follow the Christian who, like Paul, can say at the end, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's what Paul wrote Timothy at the end of his life. That is his accomplishment as a Christian. On, the, on, on a personal level. Not, I'm really influential. I've written like half the New Testament. People are going to be reading me for thousands of years. Not, I've started all these churches and I'm their spiritual daddy. I get to tell them what to do. I'm Paul. That's not what he says. At the end of his life, when he's writing to Timothy, when he's encouraging him, this is his accomplishment. This is what he says at the end of everything. He says, I've fought the good fight. Not I've lived a really comfortable life. Not I've got lots of money. Not, not any of that. Paul spent most of, where did Paul write most of his letters from? Prison. What was Paul's life like before he became a follower of Jesus? It was, it was pretty great. He was 
a Roman citizen, so he got all those perks. And he was a rabbi. He was a teacher, a respected, brilliant scholar, rabbi, someone of authority. And then he, 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 he starts following Jesus, and then he writes all his stuff from Roman prisons. And yet he says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the goal. And I don't mean to tell you that life is just something you have to grit your teeth through. Again, we're not just enduring life to get to heaven. God is transforming us. God is making us more and more like his son. And Paul is saying, I've kept the faith. I finished the race. I fought the good life. That is, we want, that is what we want to say. So here's the challenge, as Jimmy likes to say. Endurance can't be rushed. There's no quick way to get there, to quickly build endurance. Last week, Jimmy taught on waiting. And incidentally enough, as Chuck pointed out, ironically, his next sermon on waiting is next week. So you had to wait for it. So he talked on waiting, and he even serenaded us with a little Tom Petty, right? Remember, waiting, the waiting is the hardest part. And when going through a trial... Our job is to wait. And man, is that tough. Anybody, who else likes when there's, when there's a trial or there's something that you lose control, you want to do something? You want to fix it? Just me? Anybody else? Yeah. Who likes just waiting when you're going through a hard time and going, okay, we'll see. Um, the kids uh, will know this is hard. Did Harley fall asleep? Is it? Well, I don't see her anymore. Anyway. Uh, Justin Milton, who's one of the pastors at Ridgecrest, he was, he was teaching last night for the D-Now, and he was telling the story, you'll remember this, of, of these miners that got trapped. Um, this was several years back now. And I didn't remember at the time, but the, they, it took 17 days for them to figure out where they were and that they were alive. And do you know how long it took to, until the last miner was brought back up? 70 days. This man was under the earth. For more than two months he couldn't do anything he couldn't dig his way out and the stories are is that the miners they they talked to them they asked them what they did during the time because they couldn't do anything they said they prayed and they sang hymns to god this man had 70 days to do nothing he couldn't do anything but pray and wait and he was the last one 70 days so We've got to wait and allow it, the endurance that the trial is producing in us to reach its end. An evergreen Christian has a perspective of joy amid suffering. They are prepared for testing, but they also patiently await perfection. So I won't spend too much time on this point here. Pastor Jamie gave us four ways to wait on the Lord last week. I encourage you to revisit that message. But in summary, they were one, to acknowledge God's sovereignty. We must acknowledge that God is sovereign just because the trial that we fell into is unforeseen by us, that doesn't mean that it caught God by surprise. Number two, we have to come to terms with our dependence on God. We talked about that a little bit this morning as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount in Sunday school. We are dependent on him for our breath itself. There's a, a famous empirical philosopher who once said that all that would have to happen for us to cease existing is for God to stop thinking about us. We're dependent on God. We're to seek spiritual strength from the Lord. Like the man, the miner who's down there for 70 days praying. That's what he did. He sought spiritual strength from the Lord. You don't grit your teeth and endure trials. 
And you can't have a joyful perspective unless God gives you the strength to do so. The only way you can have a joyful perspective through trials is if you're given this strength from God. And finally, by being patient or still and quiet. He had a great quote from Julius Caesar that I'm going to steal. It's easier to find men who will volunteer to die than to find those who are willing to endure pain with patience. The idea of us being made complete through suffering extends even to Jesus. As Hebrews 2.10 tells us, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God should make the pioneer of their salvation. Who is the pioneer of our salvation, as it says in Hebrews 12? Jesus. That's the easiest question you're going to get. That's the Sunday school question. It was fitting that God should make Jesus perfect. How? Through what he suffered. Again, this is not talking about moral perfection because we're talking about Jesus. He was already morally perfect. But Jesus was made complete through his suffering. What does that mean? It means that he became everything he was, was supposed to be as the God-man through suffering. Similarly, God will use the endurance produced by trials to make us everything he wants us to be. And as difficult as this is to internalize, when you fall into one of these trials, remember the promises of Scripture. This is how God makes you into who he wants you to be. The complete, mature, evergreen Christian who lacks nothing. Now, Scripture is clear on this, and it's easy to understand. I think it's easy to, easy to understand if you just read verses 2 through 4. But it's incredibly difficult to live out, right? Does anybody think this is easy? If so, tell me your secret. It's incredibly difficult to, to live out. There's a great Christian existentialist philosopher. He was kind of the Christian contrast to Nietzsche. His name was Soren Kierkegaard, which is like the coolest name ever. And he once said, and he wasn't much of a looker, but the Bible is very easy to understand. He said this. Except I think he said it in Swedish or I don't remember. I think he was... He said, the Bible is very easy to understand, but we pretend to be unable to understand it because we know that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. It's easy, but it's difficult. It's, I should say it, it's, it's simple, but it's difficult. So do you want to be an evergreen Christian? Do you want to be the type of Christian that James is talking about? Or do you want to be the kind of Christian that retreats at the first sign of trouble? You have to decide before the trial hits. It's not something you figure out when you've fallen into the pit. You've got to figure this out. You, know, you can't wait until winter to decide. You've got to be prepared for it. The evergreen Christian has a perspective of joy. The evergreen Christian is prepared for testing. The evergreen Christian patiently awaits perfection. Look at that alliteration. Jimmy's not even here. That was for him. Look at all that. Oh, he will. So I've got a way to paraphrase, paraphrase these verses in, uh, in this command in kind of more modern language, and I would do it this way. This is a paraphrase. I'm not saying this is scripture. This is my own. My brothers and sisters, you must treat the various trials you encounter as 100% joy. Don't you know that these trials test the genuineness of your faith and that that testing produces endurance? And if you wait... And let endurance complete its work, then that endurance will make you a complete and mature Christian 
and you will have everything you need. I'm going to leave you with this encouragement from Jesus that's found in the Gospel of John. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. Jesus is telling you that. It's a promise. You will fall into trial. There's no way to get around it. Now, if he stopped there, wouldn't necessarily be a very popular verse, but he goes on. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you give us the strength when we fall into these trials, when we encounter these trials. Father, give us the strength to endure them. Please help us internalize the truths of your word and give us the patience to let endurance have its effect. Father, we're not asking that you make us complete through suffering. We're not asking for trials. Father, but we know that you say that it's going to happen. And instead of dreading it, instead of Instead of looking around the corner for the next trial, the next trouble, instead, Father, help us look at those when we encounter them, when we fall into them as nothing but joy. Because we know that that trial is going to produce endurance. We know that this trial will make the next one a little easier. It will make us a little stronger, a little more mature. And Father, as I pray today, I know that there are people in this room who are enduring trials, great trials, trials that I've never experienced. Father, I pray that you give them strength, that you give them encouragement, that you give them what they need to reach the finish line. I pray that everyone in this room, when we reach the end of our life, can say what Paul did, that we fought the good fight that we've finished the race and that we've kept the faith. And Father, I pray that if it's your will, that the world will see the way that we endure trials and be completely aghast, be completely shocked at how Christians, we as Christians, can go through trials, not of our own creation, not our own fault, and not just grit our teeth, Father, but consider them joy. And I pray that you will use the suffering of your people to lead sinners to salvation. We thank you for your word, even when it's simple to understand but difficult to do. Father, just give us the strength to do it. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.